ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له نشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله مدير ريسبكتد سيسترز هو ليسنينج السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته my name is Sophia Maryam and today I'm going to be going over the very inspiring story of Nuh salam. So firstly Ramadan Mubarak to you all. I hope everybody is doing well, that you are safe, that you are healthy and that you are in um, strong Iman and strong, strong spirits inshallah. So regarding the story of Nuh salam, he is one of the, the major prophets, a name that is extremely well known. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says regarding his story, regarding what happened to him and his people, that that surely we left the story of Nuh as a sign for people. So is there anybody that will remember? Is there anybody that will take heed? Now all of the stories that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, the stories of the prophets, the stories of non-prophets, the examples, the similes, the metaphors that are struck in the Quran, all of them are for our benefit, for us to take heed, for us to delve into the meanings of them and see how we can apply them to our life. And the stories of the prophets, Nuh salam, is no exception to that. It's full of hidden wisdoms and blessings and relatability in order for us to really connect with these people of Allah and by doing that we connect with our Lord Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So before we begin with Nuh himself we have to sort of look at the uh, background in which he was sent, yeah, the, the ideology and the context and the background of the people that he was sent to. Now he came in between. Uh, he he came in between um, the the sending of Adam salam, and from that time, some scholars say that it was almost over a century. So some scholars say 146 years had passed. Some scholars say longer. But the key thing is that he came after Adam salam after the teachings and the pure teachings of Adam Islam had sort of vanished from the people. And he was the very first prophet that came in order to address the illness of idol worship. So idol worship is something that he spoke about the Quran extensively. We know from the seerah of the Prophet we know even till today all around the world that this is something that has uh, you know it takes over the minds and cultures of some people but the very first people that started this practice were you know the people that, that lived prior to Nuh and after Adam and by looking at how this process of idol worship actually began we get a really interesting insight into how shaitan himself works the deception of the devil because he is an open enemy to all of mankind this is something that Allah tells us again and again in the Quran that he is mubin. he's a clear enemy to you so take him as a clear enemy and his mission is very straightforward 
His mission is to take as many people as possible with him to the hellfire. And the way that he does that, the way that he manages that, is sometimes outside of, you know, almost human comprehension. When somebody is so hell-bent on destroying you and dragging you down, they will wait and they will bide their time and they will come up with tricks and ploys and plans that you can't even almost imagine. So here we say, uh, we, we see that the poisoning of shaitan to the people was part of his greater plan. Now, the people that lived at the time of Nuh uh, before his coming rather, they used to see that amongst them there were people who, who used to live that were very good people. They were upright people, they had good character, people used to respect them, people used to go to them, etc. So when these people passed away, there was of course a lot of grief in society. One example is the idol Wad. Allah mentions in the Quran, so what is the name of an idol? But this word was actually a, you know, a man, a human being that was highly respected by his people, highly respected in society. So when he passed away, the people were naturally sad, they were grieving. And this is when shaitan came in. He came and he, you know, said to the people that, look, I can see that you're so sad. I can see that, you know, he was a great man. He's passed away. What do you think? If I was to make you a statue, then you can keep this statue of this man that you so love and revere uh, and respect. Just keep him in your gathering places. So when all of you come together, the place that you all gather in, you sit together, just have one little, you know, statue of this man there. It will just remind you. It will remind you about his goodness. It will remind you about the things that he did. And hopefully it will, you know, it will calm your minds. So then the people agreed. So this was the, 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 the inception. This was stage number one, where shaitan has come to the people and he is very, very slowly, very gradually. There's nothing drastic going on here. But very slowly he's trying to convince the people that look for your own benefit. You know, I'm, I'm just saying this for your own benefit. That look, why don't you just have a statue here? Just have him there. It'll just remind you of this, of this great person. Then as time progressed, he, you know, went to the next step. So not content with having this statue in the, the meeting place of the people, now he starts convincing the people that, look, why don't you each have a statue? Why don't you each have a statue of this man inside of your homes? Because that's where you spend most of your time. And then when you see him again, it'll remind you of good people. It'll remind you of the good old days. It will inspire you to do good. So then again, the people agreed and this was a very gradual process. So he waited, Shaitan, for generations almost to pass for his plan to be implemented. Remember, idol worship didn't begin right at, right at the start. So when the first statue was put in that meeting place, they weren't worshipping the idol at that time. But as time passed and then those people passed away and then their children were born and then those children came and they saw what their fathers were doing and then shaitan whispered to them as well that look, your forefathers, because you know forefathers are dead now, the children only inherit what they see their parents and grandparents doing. So now shaitan comes to the next generation, the next generation who didn't even know who this man was. 
they don't know who Wad was, but all they know is that, oh yes, we remember dad, granddad used to have this idol in their meeting place, in their homes. And slowly, slowly, Shaitan started telling them now that your parents used to ask and worship this idol. And that's the reason, did you know, that that's the reason why God used to send down rain to you and to your people. So generations removed, you know, he waited a very long time for his plan to be implemented for people to take on this illness and this sickness. And really that's what it is. Because associating partners with Allah is a sickness of the heart. Because what it does is that it results in your your loss of freedom. If you think about the way that we have been created, we have been created uh, free. Our minds have been created with one purpose. Our minds crave knowledge. Our minds crave to know where we came from. They crave to understand their origins, their creator, their maker. So the concept of Tawheed is something that is, you know, the, the, the core of knowledge. When something comes and it distracts you from that and you start following, you know, not Allah and not the pure teachings and knowledge of Allah, but you start following the teachings and the deception of another creation of Allah, then this is a type of slavery. We're becoming enslaved to the thinking and the whispers and the deceptions of shaitan. So one lesson that we can take, you know, from this is that, you know, this concept of family honour, doing what we've always seen our fathers and forefathers doing, acting and behaving in a way that we've only ever seen our fathers and forefathers behaving. Family honour is only honourable if it's in line with Allah's teachings. If your fathers, forefathers, your family members, they were doing wrong things, they were oppressing people, they were, you know, backbiting people, they were taking the rights of people, they were taking, you know, the rights of the orphans, etc. And you continue that, that legacy of what your family was doing just because that's the only thing that you've been brought up doing, you know, that's not good enough. Because each person has been created with their own intellect. We are not sheep and we will be held accountable according to our own capacity, our own understanding. So regardless of what the next person, you know, what your friends are doing, what your family are doing, even what the rest of society, all of them, regardless of what they're doing, we in our mind have to be clear about what is right and what is wrong according to the law of Allah. Because it's only when we become unclear and our minds become clouded and we start following without thinking and we start doing things without questioning and you know we stop caring about principles and morals and ethics that's when it becomes easy for shaitan to come and attack that's become that's when it becomes very very easy for shaitan to mislead many many people and you know if you look around the world today you you know you see people engaged in certain acts that you think like, oh my God, how can anybody, anybody with the same mind be doing these things? But it's because when you allow yourself to get into such a mental state where you're not concerned with right or wrong anymore, then shaitan will remove all of those barriers. He will convince you that what you're doing is fine and it's correct and, you know, and, and it almost becomes a culture. And this is what happened to the people that, you know, lived just before the time of Nuh Islam. They were literally sheep they knew no better, they all, all they knew, all they saw were their 
fathers, forefathers worshipping idols and that's what they did without questioning, without thinking, without ever sort of questioning oh, is this the right thing to do, is it the logical thing to do, is it a rational thing to do to be carving idols of creation or you know of just normal people like you and I you know carving idols with our own hands and then worshipping them, does this logically make sense? So without even questioning that, you know, they, they started following this this tradition. So that was the the background of Nuh Islam. He came, you know, as as an intellectual, you can say. He came as an intellectual amongst these people that were blinded. You know, he was a scholar amongst sheep. He was a thinker amongst sheep. He was someone who whose mind was not polluted and he had to deal with, he had to grapple with people that you know, had had blinders on. They could only see one thing, and that is what their fathers and forefathers had done. Now, when Nuh Islam came, you know, he received prophethood at the age of forty. You know, which is something that uh, is a pattern of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala when it comes to giving prophethood at an age of wisdom. So, when he received prophethood and he was given his task, given his responsibility to you know, go to these people, his own people, people that he lived alongside, people that he knew, people that he was raised amongst, that in order to convince them that what you are doing is wrong, what you are doing is illogical, what you are doing is harming yourself, is harming your soul. What happened is that you started getting two groups of people. And this is something that, that is very, very common, that when somebody comes with a um, an idea, when somebody comes with a concept to reform society, there will always be people that accept and there will always be people who reject. And if you look at the people who often reject change, change for good, is those people that are happy with the status quo because they are benefiting from it. So in the time of Nuh Islam, the people who were rich and famous and the leaders, they were extremely happy with the way that things were going. They were happy with the status quo. They were happy with the way that society was revolving around them. For them, change was scary. They didn't want to go down that road because that might result in their status, their richness, their wealth being reduced. Therefore, the people that were, you know, the, the leaders, the rich in society, they were the ones who shunned the message of Nuh Islam the most. So even when Nuh Islam came and he spoke about, you know, amazing things, he tried to come and enlighten them about things that, you know, they, they hadn't even considered. He spoke about the mysteries of life, the wonders of the universe, all of the signs. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an, that some of the conversations that Nuh had with his people, very, very deep concepts. He tells them, Alam Haven't you seen how Allah created the seven heavens? Then, you know, the moon and the sun he talks about. He talks about produce. He talks about, you know, the way that Allah sends down rain, the way that Allah has spread out the earth. All of these amazing things these signs around them. Nuh is encouraging them to think about. But their eyes were blinded. You know, they didn't want things to change. Therefore, even despite how compelling the argument was, they were not going to listen. They weren't happy. And it was those people, those handful of people that were, you know, 
the at the bottom of society according to what society you know deems in in the hierarchy of rich and famous so the poor people the slaves etc people who weren't enslaved by materialistic things whose minds weren't enslaved by society they were the people whose minds actually started thinking about the message of Nuh al-Islam and taking it on so if you think about you know a slave just as an example we're taking a slave who lived maybe at the time of Nuh al-Islam that slave might have been more free than the person who owned him them in reality in reality it was the master who was a slave and it was the slave who was a free man because the master in his you know comfort and luxury and richness he had become enslaved to things that were a creation of Allah he'd become enslaved to the power and the fame and the money and the food and all of those things whereas the slave he his mind was free because he wasn't attached to any of these things so he his heart and his mind were more clear to think about god and to think about higher things to think about deeper things so a lesson that we can take from this you know the coming of nuh al-islam with him you know pleading with the people and giving them you know extremely compelling arguments but still them turning away tells us that when something is going wrong in society when there's an illness a sickness in society whatever it may be you know it might be poverty it might be capitalism it might be you know slavery it might be war anything that is wrong in society always has a beneficiary there's always somebody there's always some people that are benefiting from this and those people will not want things to change if you look at world poverty world poverty or if you look at the pharmaceutical industry if you look at war in general all of these things we think are being bad things you know isn't it ideal to have a world where people don't have to suffer poverty where people you know are have access to free healthcare and medicine etc but when you delve a little deeper all of these wrongs and ills in society they continue the way that they're continuing because there's always someone behind the scenes benefiting from them benefiting from the money or the power or the status etc so it's important to remember that these people are not our role models just because society is telling us that the people who look a certain way people who dress a certain way people who live in certain houses people who are celebrities who are rich who are famous that these are people that we should aspire to be like it's our job as free thinking individuals to actually think that what is it that they are propagating what message are they bringing that is of benefit to me and to the people around me that are these my role models when things are going to go wrong is it going to be you know the celebrities the rich and the famous who are going to be there writing the wrongs of society you know even today you know we look at the current crisis that we're in it's become increasingly apparent that the people who are there and needed in society are not the rich and the famous and the bankers and you know the, the people right at the top but rather it's the people who society led us to believe were at the bottom of the food chain it's the delivery drivers and the nurses and the carers and all of these people that when things go wrong they are the ones who are not self absorbent they are the ones who will go out of their way to help people 
So then the next thing is what kind of arguments did these people have then if Nuh as a prophet is coming with all of these you know arguments regarding Allah regarding you know the the creation of Allah regarding the oneness of Allah encouraging them to think and giving them you know arguments that really they can't even refute he's telling them about the the harms of idol worship He's telling them about the irrational nature of idol worship. He's telling them about the oneness of Allah and why Allah deserves to be worshipped as one. So what kind of arguments could these people have come uh, up with in order to reject this message? So one of the, 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 the things that they said to Nuh one of the reasons they gave for rejecting his message is that they said, well, you're just a man like us. Like, there's nothing special about you. You're just like us. You live amongst us. You do the same things that we do. Why should we? Why should we take guidance from a person like you? And in fact, not only are you like us, but in a lot of regards, we're better than you because you don't have the 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 following and the crowds and the the money and the status that we do. Therefore, why should we take help from you? And this is a common theme that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, that when a prophet, you know, a prophet who has come to a nation, a nation who is, you know, has, is drowning in darkness, that's when Allah sends his, his light, when Allah sends the prophets, because those people are in need, they don't even know it, but we are in need of guidance and light because we are drowning in, in darkness and sin and enslaving our minds and our freedom. So when Allah sends help in the form of people, because we are people and it's only humans that are going to be relatable to us, it's, it doesn't make sense for Allah to send us an angel to teach us about our ways, because then we'd turn around and say, well, hang on a second, I'm not an angel, so therefore how can I act like this angel is acting? So Allah chose, obviously, to send men, to send humans in order to teach us because they are like us in some regards. Therefore, it makes it even more compelling that if this person who has been raised alongside me, the person who sits and drinks and walks and talks like me, if they can, you know, open their mind and, you know, find the truth, find guidance, then surely I can as well. But the reality is that Unfortunately, we're often so, so unwilling to take help from people who we don't deem to be at our level or above. Meaning in our minds, we have this sort of almost inferiority complex or we have a certain criteria in our mind that in order for me to listen to somebody, in order for me to take advice for somebody, in order for me to, you know, um, benefit from somebody, this person has to look a certain way or dress a certain way or be a certain way. Whereas, where do we get this criterion from? It's not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The criterion that Allah gives is that if a person comes to you with good counsel, if a person comes to you teaching you about Allah, if a person is God conscious, then these are people that we should aspire towards. We should take heed and we should you know, befriend them and benefit from them. But unfortunately, we're so unwilling sometimes to take help from people who, you know, in, in our understanding are not at our level. And, you know, in, 
in psychological studies, this is something that has been kind of looked at time and time again, that sometimes when we meet a person for the very first time, we judge them more on the shoes that they are wearing rather than what is coming out of their mouth. So you might have a person who, for example, is homeless or a person who who, who doesn't have a very high-flying quote-unquote job like you know a taxi driver you know some people regard unfortunately taxi drivers as you know uneducated maybe or illiterate whereas the reality is when you get into that taxi or when you have this conversation with this homeless person or, or, or this person they might come out with gems and knowledge that is far beyond what anybody who has you know a degree or a master's or a phd could advise you they might give you something that will change your life if you were to act upon it, if you were to take heed of it. But because we've already got this perception in our mind that when we meet somebody in the first, you know, 30 seconds, based on how that person, you know, the accent that they have and the clothes that they're wearing, etc. We've already made a decision that whether this person is worthy of our listening or not. Okay, so, so this is something that is wrong. This is... Uh, a description of people who are proud and arrogant and this is what the people did to Nuh the second thing that the people demanded was that they said to Nuh that okay look maybe your arguments make a little bit of sense however because of the people that hang around you we think that this is something that's going to ruin our image therefore if you want us to follow you you need to get rid of the followers that you have. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're cramping our style. Now, subhanAllah, again, you see how self-image, it kind of overtakes us and deceives us. We only want to be seen sitting with certain people. We only want to be seen hanging around and liaising with people of a certain status, etc. I mean, this argument that the people came up with, it just shows how low they had sunk because on one side, one part of them maybe is calling them towards truth. They've obviously recognized that in Nuh al-Islam, you know, maybe there's something there. There's something in his message that actually, yes, it does make sense. But the only thing that is stopping them from embracing the truth is what? Is pride and arrogance that, no, we can't associate with you. Because, you know, the people that hang around with you, they're just, you know, poor and, you know, the, the, the poor and the lowly of society. So since when did truth have anything to do with status? When did truth have anything to do with the way that a person looks? When did truth ever have a relationship with how rich somebody is? And the reality is, you know, subhanAllah, if, you know, if we think about if any of the prophets were alive today, if any of the prophets' wives even were alive today, would we want to befriend them? Or would we, na'udhu billah, think that they are beneath us? That, you know, they're not cool enough to hang around with us because, you know, they don't have the degrees and the education and they don't, you know, dress and, you know, make themselves up and uh, do the things that we think are, are good. So, you know, that's something to, to think about. That if we're going to base accepting knowledge uh, based on these fickle things, self-image. This is a clear form of deception. 
So then the arguments, you know, the, the invalid arguments of the people of Nuh Islam, they continued as he was doing his da'wah, they continued, and finally they got fed up of it. And finally their pride and their arrogance in rejecting the message led them to to make, you know, very, very strong, you know, statements. And they said, look, Nuh, you've argued with us and you've debated with us for a long, long time. Yes, then they said that look this has been going on long enough if you are really truthful then why don't you bring us bring us that punishment that you're promising us so now their 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 pride and their arrogance and their insolence has reached like the peak so there's almost like a three three stage process here the first step was a denial. So they were like, what do you mean? You're just a man like us. You know, they, they denied that he was even a messenger. They denied that he, he even had anything worthy of being listened to. Then the second step, they were like, okay, maybe you've got something going for you there, but it has to be on our terms. Therefore, get rid of these people and we'll follow you. It has to be on our terms the way that we want it to be. And then the third stage, the third step was, that's it, lashing out, anger, that bring us the punishment of Allah, you know, because we, we've had enough of your arguments and your da'wah and your talking. So it was essentially, you know, the, the, the sickness of pride that stopped them from salvation. It stopped them from learning. It stopped them from embracing new things. And it stopped them from even entertaining the possibility that they might be wrong. You know, sometimes we, we have this, that, you know, in our mind, we've convinced ourselves of one thing for so long that our minds become closed. And it's not the, the, the characteristic of a believer to be closed-minded. We should be open to learning, open to change. You know, there's a possibility that, you know, somebody out there is doing things, you know, better than we are. So you, we have to be willing to grow and to learn and to adapt. And another lesson that we take from this is, subhanAllah, how quickly is it that we lose patience with people that really only want what's best for us? And this is like a prime, prime example. What was Nuh coming with? He was coming with something that was their salvation. It was for their benefit, something that was going to lead them away from the punishment and lead them towards the pleasure of Allah, lead them towards paradise he didn't want money from them. He didn't want a wage from them. He didn't want any fame or status, nothing from them. He only wanted in sincerity what was best for them. But it's those very people that, you know, we turn around and we lose our temper with. I mean, if you think about it in reality, how many times has a person, you know, became angry and lashed out and started, you know, raising their voice and swearing at their boss or their employer? or their manager the people that you often you know lose your temper with and you get angry with are people like you know our parents so many people they show you know cheek and anger to their parents whereas they are the last people on the planet who should hear your raised voice who should hear you know a, a, a tone of anger the people that want what's best for you, your family, your friends, your children, you know, your teachers, we turn around and we display insolence and arrogance with them. 
you know, we shout and scream at them, we swear at them, we reject them, you know, we say harsh words to them. But people that don't even have our interests at heart, people to whom we are just, you know, a statistic almost, like our employers, we're all very nice and polite and yes sir, no sir, you know, three bags full sir. It just goes to show that this is, you know, it's it's a strange uh, form of, of affairs, it's extremely wrong and we need to really pull our head out of the sand and cover the wool from our eyes and think about what we're doing here. The people that Allah has entrusted uh, us with, you know, people who are massive blessings in our life, you know, how dare we get angry and lash out at them? You know, why is it that we choose who to lose our temper with? Obviously, it goes to show that it's controllable. Because if a person, you know, um, had a problem, let's just say, with anger, they'd be angry all the time. They wouldn't pick and choose who they're angry with. When you pick and choose who you're angry with, it means that in your mind, you've made a hierarchy that, okay, this person I can belittle, whereas this person I can't belittle. And where do we get this criterion from? The next thing that I want to look at is the perseverance of Nuh So we already know what kind of people he came to, you know, the background and the mentality of these people, the kind of fickle arguments that they came up with, how they denied him and then they rejected him and they came out with silly terms and conditions and then they just, you know, became very angry with him. But Nuh is well known from the Quran that he was a prophet who lived for 950 years. Yes, which is an entire millennium minus 50 years. 1,000 minus 50 years, Allah says in the Quran. And I don't think we can really ever comprehend what this means. That from those 950 years, he became a prophet at the age of 40. For over nine centuries, nine centuries to keep going back again and again and again to the same people saying the same thing, giving the same message, the willpower and determination that you need for something like that, the willpower to keep waking up every single morning, you know, exhausting every single effort that you can in order to drag these people away from their own destruction. You know, what kind of, you know, subhanAllah, what kind of patience and perseverance is this? You know, what kind of mentality does a person like this have you know, it's a person of sincerity who knows that I'm not doing this for any other reason except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it wasn't, you know, nine centuries of just, you know, waking up and, you know, listening to their verbal abuse and coming back. Their abuse, it was extensive. Not only was it verbal, you know, them shouting and swearing and insulting him, but it led to physical abuse. You know, the, the narration mentioned that they would beat Nuh they would choke him so much that he would faint, he would become unconscious. Then they would wrap him up in a rug and fling him into his home. Then when he'd wake up, you know, in that state, the only thing that would come to his tongue is to make dua for these people. Though Allah forgive these people because they don't know, they don't know what they're doing. You know, again and again, day in, day out, subhanAllah, we, you know, sometimes when we have a task to do, you know, we do it once, it doesn't go according to plan. We might do it one more time, three times, four times, five times maybe maximum before we get fed up. You know, fed up of this, you know, failure, 
and you we move on to something else. Whereas Nuh Islam, he had one job, and for nine centuries, you know, how many days is that? How many hours is that? How many thoughts and feelings must he have gone through in order to, you know, really trying to sit and convince, you know, Ya Allah, how shall I do this? What shall I say to them today? What mode of communication shall I use today? What argument shall I use today? Maybe they'll listen to this, maybe this, maybe this. To do that again and again and again and keep, you know, keep hope. This is something that, you know, subhanAllah is almost, you know, miraculous. It's a miraculous personality trait to have. And the hope of Nuh Islam is so inspiring because even though he lived for 950 years, the scholars mentioned that not everybody around him had the same lifespan. So imagine this, that he is preaching to one generation. They have rejected him, they've insulted him, they have beat him unconscious, but he keeps going with the hope that, okay, maybe, Ya Allah, maybe if it's not these people, maybe their children tomorrow, the next generation will accept the message. Then the next generation is born, but they're born into the same blindness as their parents. Then they become a replica of their parents. They reject him, they deny him, they insult him, they beat him up. But again, Nuh makes dua for them. He still has hope that, Ya Allah, okay, maybe if it's not this generation, maybe it will be their children that accept the message. Maybe it will be their children, their children, their children. And he kept this going and subhanallah he would have kept going this is you know one of the beautiful you know characteristics of nuh that the end of it it wasn't the sabr of nuh that ran out allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him you know after you know that the time has passed allah decreed and allah revealed to him that look nuh nobody else now is going to believe your message the followers, the handful of followers that you have now, that's it. It's only then, after Allah had revealed that to him, that Nuh made dua against his people. You know, subhanAllah, otherwise, you know, he went, kept going for nine centuries, he would have kept going for another nine centuries. You know, because he was so firm in conviction that Allah has given me a task. This is the right thing to do. And the right thing you know, it gives you a boost when you know that you are doing the right thing, is pleasing to Allah. It shouldn't matter to us what people around us are doing. And we see here that, look, there's a, you know, amazing sort of contrast here between the game that shaitan played and the efforts that Nuh brought. So remember I told you that shaitan, he bide his time. Yeah, he waited for generations to pass before idol worshipping actually became established. So he came at the beginning, you know, just started them off with the statues and then he came to their children and then their children in order to really finalise his plan. So the game of shaitan was that he tried for generations in order to lead people away from Allah. And we look at the efforts of Nuh here, subhanAllah. He did the same thing for generations and generations he tried in order to bring people back to Allah. But what is the reason that it's so easy to begin an evil in society but it's so difficult to remove it? Look at how willing and how easy really it was for the shaitan to 
to come and you know instill this concept of idol worship in the people so much so that now they are unwilling to give it give it up regardless of the evidences and the proofs that come their way it's become so ingrained in them this illness that they are unwilling to give it up whereas when it comes to the other way round that when somebody is coming to try and remove a, remove an evil from society it's so difficult therefore it tells us that prevention is the key once an evil has become rooted in in your family in your children in society it'll be very very difficult to remove but it's very easy to start off therefore we have to take our precautions right to right from the beginning we need to be very careful in the culture that we create in our homes in what we allow and what we tolerate in our homes because once you open up the doors slowly 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 there's almost no going back once an illness has permeated you know a society it becomes so pleasing to the people that they will do anything to keep hold of it so now when you know all of the well wishers in the world can try and get together and remove that illness from society it becomes very difficult to do so therefore we need to try and prevent these things to begin with um rather than you know leaving it till too late so when you know subhanallah nuh alayhi salam carried on for centuries and centuries and generations and generations and he you know he bore the the insults and the physical abuse of these people he exhausted every single avenue that he could and nuh alayhi salam was a very very good orator he you know had the you know the power of the word he was very well spoken his arguments of course were compelling arguments because they were about the truth and you know humans recognize truth we 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 see you know if we allow ourselves to we see the power of knowledge and truth but he continued and he continued and he continued but when allah revealed to him that no nobody else now is going to believe that's when he made dua against them that ya allah then don't leave anybody from them on this on the face of this planet because all they're going to do is that they're going to pollute their children and then their children and their their children this culture of idol worship will you know continue as long as these people continue if there's if there's no hope for their guidance so that's when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him the command to build an ark to build a ship and the same way that nuh alayhi salam did not flinch at the command of allah to propagate the message he didn't flinch at the command of allah to build an ark even though he was nowhere near the sea no he was very far from the sea and he started building you know he started building this ark and subhanallah nuh alayhi salam was not uh, a carpenter so to build an ark or to engage in you know a, a task like that that in itself it shows subhanallah that the people of allah the prophets they are willing to do anything and to learn anything to become closer to allah that we if we want to maintain a connection with allah we have to take action we can't wait for you know subhanallah revelation to come down to us and we can't you know be lazy in our homes and expect you know our our state to change there has to be physical action that is done from our part so nuh alayhi salam he was instructed to to be active still after 9 centuries of you know activism of da'wah 
now Allah is commanding him to to learn a new science to build an ark and when Nuh started on this endeavor the people didn't stop with their taunts and subhanallah this is a common trait of people who are narcissistic or people who are bullies because Nuh has tried day in day out in every mode of communication possible you know he's tried preaching to them alone he's tried preaching to them okay maybe not alone let me do it in a gathering maybe they can support one another in gatherings they wouldn't listen so he'd go to them in the daytime when the daytime didn't work he'd go to them in the nighttime he tried everything but still they rejected his message in the harshest of ways now when Nuh leaves them be now he's left them and he started on this task that Allah has given him to build the ark they still follow him and continue with their taunts so they didn't stop that okay Nuh's you know he's left us now let us stop but no they still had to feed their egos they still had to meddle in his affairs they still had to have the final say so they would go after him and say things like Nuh what are you doing there's no sea around here for you know miles and miles what has your lord told you to do why are you building an ark what a silly thing to do how are you going to sail this ark you know are you going to sail it in the desert how are you even going to get it to the sea you know are the bulls going to come and drag it for you you know just taunts upon taunts upon taunts and the lesson that we take from this you know subhanallah is the power of words themselves that the people of Nuh some of them engaged like I said in physical abuse you know they, they would do very harsh things to Nuh beat him you know unconscious sometimes but a lot of them they would just use their tongues in order to belittle him and his message and you know sometimes we ourselves we don't comprehend the weight of what we're saying sometimes we'll on purpose we might have digs at someone we might on purpose say things to hurt somebody even if it's not on purpose sometimes recklessly recklessly we we don't think about what they're saying we might end up saying one small thing to somebody to somebody that is close to Allah and that one small thing that we say might incur the wrath of Allah so these people you know subhanallah how Hurtful must it have been for Nuh to hear all of these things. They called him crazy, they called him mad, they called him every name that you can think of under the sun. No, it's not easy for a person to, to listen to, for a person to tolerate. But then you think about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala must have been responding to this. That how it must have angered Allah himself. That his prophet, his beloved prophet that he has sent as a saving grace for these people they're turning around and they're using their tongues which Allah has created in order to hurt him and to belittle him so we need to be very careful when it comes to to the tongue because the words are extremely powerful we can use them for a lot of good and we can use them for a lot of bad as well so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know commanded Nuh to build the ark and he fulfilled his task finally the command from Allah came and when the punishment of Allah comes there can be no force in the universe that can stop it Allah gave respite to these people for centuries and centuries and centuries but when the punishment came then there could be no overturning it so Nuh was told that 
you know, water will start flowing from your home. And that's going to be a sign that you and your people need to leave. So when that happened, the, the people around him, they were in delusion. They were, you know, laughing and still mocking at him right till the very end moment, thinking, you know, the punishment of Allah won't come to us. What is this crazy man doing? Why is he building a ship in the middle of the desert? But when the punishment came, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up the doors of the heavens. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up, you know, that the heavens themselves, they began flowing with water. So water came down in a way that had never been seen before. So the flood, you know, the great deluge that we talk about in the time of Nuh this was the punishment that Allah sent in order to cleanse the land of Nuh The punishment came and everybody who was not on the, the ark, who was not on the ship, they were drowned. And even the wife and the son, sorry, even the son of Nuh he did not believe in the message. And subhanAllah, you think about how big a test this is. You know, it's almost like the worst situation that a father can be in. Because on one hand, you know, you've got this immense responsibility to propagate the, the true message of Allah. And on the other hand, you've just got this, you know, this innate disposition, this natural feeling inside of you to love your children and want what's best for you. But if Allah has not decreed guidance for somebody, you know, this is something that nobody can overturn, not even a prophet. You know, nobody could have been a better father than Nuh Nobody could have given a better education and upbringing and a tarbiyah and, you know, teaching about Allah than Nuh You know, he was, you know, teaching the whole of the society about amazing arguments regarding Allah. Therefore, the people who were in his household they were recipient of that. They saw all of this. But still, you know, even though it's beyond, you know, logical comprehension, but still, if Allah hasn't decreed guidance for somebody, then there's nothing that anybody can do. And that leads us to, 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 to understand that our job is to try our best. When it comes to family members, especially, when it comes to children, even your spouse, your parents, any family member or friend, you have to do your best. This doesn't mean that you become complacent, that you think that it's not your problem or it's not your responsibility. No. Nuh didn't lack in his, in his trying. He did everything that he could for his family members and the people around him as well. But then at the end of that, after you have done your bit, after you have brought your children up well, you've taught them about Allah and his messenger, you've done their character building, after you've done all of that, then you know we can say that the, the the everything is left in the hands of Allah. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his punishment came and the son of Nuh and all of the people that rejected him, they were drowned in this flood. And you know that the heavens poured forth in a manner, like I said, that had never been done before. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Tajribiya kufir that this ship of Nuh is sailed under our observation. And this was a recompense or an answer or a reward for that same prophet, 
that had been denied and rejected for so long that you know he tried his best and Allah saw all of his efforts that you know for over nine centuries the da'wah that he gave and he kept going even in the face of you know apparent failure you know apparent failure because he's waking up every day doing the same thing people aren't believing the message but still he goes to sleep with hope he wakes up with hope and this is you know subhanallah an amazing lesson that we can take from the life of Nuh and after you know as for what happened after this the Quran essentially kind of draws a curtain on what happened we know that the people and the animals were on the ark they were saved um, and you know they they rebuild their lives after that but the Quran doesn't mention anything more after that as for Nuh the wisdom and the story of him more than anything else I suppose he will be remembered for his patience that's what you know a lot of people we, we, we remember you know the amazing thing about Nuh is 950 years you know he preached to his people and you know time really is the most valuable thing that we have time more than money and more than you know anything else is the most valuable thing that we can dedicate to the path of Allah and he Nuh dedicated everything that he had for the sake of Allah therefore when it comes to the people that are beloved to us you know make sure that we are giving them time and not just showering them with you know money and presence and depriving them of things that are really important and just three final traits regarding Nuh that I want to mention as a conclusion that maybe out of everything that we've mentioned inshallah I hope you know you all benefit the way that, that I did you know it's absolutely all inspiring to to really delve into the story of Nuh and understand you know the people that he was up against and the the positivity that he that he brought to the people around him but one trait that really stood out is we really need to work on upping our game when it comes to communication skills. Nuh was an excellent orator. He was an excellent speaker and da'i. And we see that from the Quran. We see the kind of you know words and the language and the way that he was addressing the people and the arguments that he was making. It's so, so important for us to know the people around us. That when you're trying to speak to somebody, when you're trying to convince somebody, when you're trying to do da'wah to somebody, you have to be relatable. And on top of that, you have to be a good representative. You yourself have to be an embodiment of the things that you are preaching. Because nobody could turn around. None of the people of Nuh turned around and said to him, Oh, no, Nuh, we're not going to listen to you because you're a bad person. You've got bad character. You commit such and such sin. They didn't say that because they couldn't say that. Nuh was himself an excellent representative of what it means to be a person who submits to Allah. Yes, so that's the first thing that we need to, number one, fix our relationship with Allah. And before we start preaching to people, we have to make sure that we had take time and effort to understand them, understand where they're coming from, understand their background, understand their story. And then we can work on our writing skills, our public speaking skills. Because communication is everything. You can't convince somebody of, you know, of following what you're saying. If you don't know, you might have the best message in the world, but if you don't know how to convey it, then you're falling short in your obligation. Therefore, if you live amongst a group of people that speak a certain language, 
we have to make sure that we learn that language and we learn it properly. The second thing is that we should always wish the best for other people only for the sake of Allah. Yeah, and this Nuh al-Islam, we see this in his story again and again, that regardless of what happened to him, everything that he did, all the times that he was wronged and hurt, again, I mean, I don't think anybody can, can go through the hurt and the abuse that he did for the time period that he did. But sometimes we too, we are hurt by people, we are wronged by people. But how many times can we keep forgiving? That's the key thing. That Nuh al-Islam, because his sincerity was so uh, pure, because he was only doing it, not for the sake of himself or the people, but for the sake of Allah, he wanted what is best for them. And this is something that, again, we can inculcate into our lives, that regardless of whether it's a worldly thing or whether it's a religious thing, when people come to you for help or they don't come to you and you are in a position to help them, we should be very sincere, very sincere in the advice that we give them. And the final point that I want to end with is to stay positive. That even when things are going tough, things are, you know, right now we're in a uh, time of, you know, crazy change. You know, you, we've begun Ramadan, alhamdulillah, in a way that, you know, maybe we've never experienced before with this whole lockdown, etc. But the characteristic of a believer is that regardless of what's happening around us, we have to stay positive. And that's the only way that Nuh Islam, he continued his message day in day out with the same passion with the same effort with the same enthusiasm to keep going can only be a result of us you know staying positive and knowing deep down that this dunya is fleeting and that the end the outcome is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so wa akhiru da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen that was a short, very quick um, glance through the life of Nuh salam. You know, an amazing story, an amazing prophet. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with all of the prophets. There's so much that we can learn and reflect upon. And I do hope that this inspires you to read more about Nuh salam and all of the other prophets. The story of Nuh salam can be found in Surah Nuh. We've got a whole surah dedicated uh, to his name. It's also scattered throughout other surahs in the Qur'an like Surah Yunus, Surah Hud, Surah A'raf, Surah Anbiya, etc. where we can piece together all of those characteristics that Nuh had that were so beloved to Allah and how he did and he fulfilled his responsibility in the best of manners. So Jazakumullah Khair for attending and listening. Uh, I wish you all you know, the, the best inshallah for this Ramadan. Please keep me and the whole of Asufa Institute in your du'as. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.